January 20th, 2020. A mysterious disease explodes from the National Biosafety Laboratory near Wuhan. COVID-19. A powerful race-specific biological weapon under secret development there is released into the population, creating a deadly biohazard. Carried by Chinese people, COVID-19 spreads throughout eastern China and Eurasia, infecting 6 million percent of the populace. Half of the world's boomers die. The greatest biohazard in history later becomes known simply as Corona-chan. But at this time, who could have possibly imagined that the ultimate biohazard wouldn't occur for another 30 seconds? only one race the chariot race hello this is dope movies and shows i am nat and with me as always is the good sir hemingford gray how are you my dude there may be only one race but there were two types of people pineapple on pizza or not well that's uh that's very russian of you to say and i take offense (laughs) i take great offense to that i'm going to write a letter to my senator All right, how are we doing today? How you? How, what, what have you been up to? What have you been up to recently? Uh, very little. Uh, I, I spent four hours of my day watching Ben Hur. So, <laughs> <laughs> and about and about fifteen minutes watching the watching the twenty sixteen version. <laughs> Not watching both at three x speed. Come on, pleb. <laughs> uh, dear, you, you know me. You know me. I'm a, I'm a bit old school. I have to watch it all in in entirety. Let's uh, let's talk about some movies now, shall we? Let's talk about a long movie. A long movie named Ben-Hur. So this is a classic film from the late 1950s. It's an adaptation of a novel from the 1880s and a remake of a silent film from the 1920s. But it was also a play in the 1890s. Another <laughs> film in the 1900s, the 19 zeros, if you will. It was an animated film in the 20 zeros, a miniseries in the 2010s, and yet another film in 2016. So there's our there's our Wikipedia recap of this thing. Now, why, oh why, was this made and remade so often from the novel? Is it really that good of a novel written by Lou Wallace? Well, what is it about? It's about a fictional prince in Israel during Roman occupation, whose name is Judah Ben-Hur, hence the title Ben-Hur. In the film we're going to talk about, the famous one, Ben-Hur is played by Charlton Heston, who is the least Middle Eastern man on the planet. Ben-Hur becomes displaced and ends up going on an adventure throughout the Roman Empire that eventually brings him back to Israel or Judea. For example, a freak accident accompanied by anti-Semitic pro-imperial persecution leads to Ben-Hur becoming a slave. Those evil Romans and their salutes crushing the the Judeans. Of course, of course. Not only does Ben-Hur become a slave, though, he then becomes Roman nobility himself, as well as a renowned sportsman in the chariot circuit. Did this remind you of a certain, uh, is it Tony Scott film, is it starring Russell Crowe? Are we talking about the Gladiator? Yeah, yeah. Did it just remind yes. you? Did Gladiator? Did obviously I I saw this one after Gladiator, so but but did it kind of did did uh, yes. it kind of evoke a Gladiator to you? The other the other film, funny enough, that it evoked to me was um, Have you seen Monty Python's Life of Brian? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, actually, on the on the on the video cover to um, Monty Python's Life of Brian, there's a little thing on there that says makes makes Ben Hur look like an epic. And then, kind of, when, when, you, when you watch the when you watch the watch the film, it, it kind of it fills that in, doesn't it? You know why they reference Ben Hur in it now, don't you? You know what? I need to watch Life of Brian again because I uh, I, I I didn't get the references because I watched Ben Hur when I was kind of young, and then I when I was a little bit older, I watched all the Monty Python movies, mm. and then when I was uh, older than that, <laughs> um, I watched Ben Hur. And so this is um, so this is a film epic. This is something that isn't really represented anymore, and it was only really popular before the 1970s, I think. And that's why like Gladiator stands out because it is like a, a more modern film epic. And these yeah. take place normally during the times of antiquity, like Roman times, and and the, of course the Egyptian Empire and whatnot. 
the other thing that kind of tickled me was like you can imagine there's a timeline where where like Brian's running around one side of Judea and you've got Ben Hur running around the other side of Judea. <laughs> right. And, and and yeah, that's a play off of kind of the multiple parallel stories going on in in Ben Hur. Yeah. Uh, but we'll we'll touch upon that. We'll touch upon that. Not right now, but we will. Uh, I I I like the film epic genre. Things like Lawrence of Arabia and whatnot. Although I can't really think of many uh, film epics that I truly adore. I've always been a bit of a sucker for like a generational epic. You know, you know the ones that takes place over like 20, 30 years like this one does. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. I absolutely do like that. I find that a lot of these film epics are a little bit loaded with messages that are subversive because they, I, I, I guess the the idea of antiquity allows us to make excuses. For human behavior like for example do you remember the i think these were both hbo series no wait sorry so you had rome which was on hbo do you remember that i watched rome but i don't really remember it it didn't really stick out to me but i, I i've watched a fair amount of rome yeah the first series also on i think it was showtime don't quote me on that uh but another similar thing to hbo they had spartacus I never watched Spartacus. That never really sparked my interest. My girlfriend used to watch. My ex-girlfriend used to watch it though. Okay, so there's there's actually sort of similarities between these two. So obviously they both take place during ancient Roman times. Doesn't Spartacus the film also star uh, Charlton Heston? I think. Does it really? I uh, I didn't know that. That would be kind of uh, kind of egregious <laughs> for him to star in all these epics. <laughs> Wait, he was also in the Ten Commandments, wasn't he? I think I think you're right about that. Yeah, that's not Charlton Heston. That was uh, some other. Oh yes, person. It was, um, who was it? Uh, I actually didn't look at the name, but I looked at the face. <laughs> it was it was Kirk Douglas. I've just looked at. Okay, um, but these these shows are both really degenerate. Like it's really just an excuse for people to watch simulated orgies on TV, but feel like oh, it was a long time ago. This is how people were, so I can I can condone this kind of of behavior. And then they have something like that on Sabrina. Like on Netflix, but starring teenagers. I think was it like the sixties or seventies Caligula film kind of ruined ruined Rome in the mind of a lot of people, didn't it? Yeah, maybe. As far as I know, that film was uh, reorganized to be a softcore porno, like explicitly yeah. when it came out. So it just sort of barely was was even presenting itself as legitimate film. Whereas <laughs> Rome and Spartacus, absolutely, absolutely, were trying to say this is prestige TV. And a part of that, it's like Game of Thrones, like the early seasons of Game of Thrones. Now, granted, I watched all of this, Game of Thrones, Rome, Spartacus, and enjoyed it. But at least I knew I was excusing myself, right? <laughs> so I want to start talking about the content of the film by reading to everyone the opening paragraph. So the film opens with some narration, someone speaking over the film, and... I'm going to just read the opening paragraphs here. In the year of our Lord, Judea, for nearly a century, had lain under the mastery of Rome. In the seventh year, in the reign of Augustus Caesar, an imperial decree ordered each and every Judean to return to his place of birth to be counted and taxed. The converging ways of many of them led to the gates of their capital city, Jerusalem, the troubled heart of their land. The old city was dominated by the fortress of Antonia, the Roman seat of power, and by the great golden temple, the outward sign of an inward and imperishable faith. Even while they obeyed the will of Caesar, the people clung proudly to their ancient heritage, always remembering the promise of their prophets that one day there would be born among them a redeemer to bring them salvation and perfect freedom. Now, if this isn't a deeply loaded context, I don't know what is. <laughs> okay, I think people will start to get an idea of why we're talking about this movie already. Even if you haven't seen it, even if you haven't picked up in the past on the real themes behind the movie, this is important to me. In fact, this uh, this project, the Ben-Hur analysis project that we're doing today, this was one of the original ideas for dope movies and shows along with the global warming episode. So we're just getting to it now. And it's uh, it's something that I realized a few years ago when I was still kind of a little baby mentally and in terms of awareness. And I started to realize that certain people who are advocated as trustworthy actually lie all the time. 
certain people like journalists at the New York Times and the Washington Post. You'll you'll read a headline and and then go in and actually read the article, which perfectly contradicts the headline. You know the excuse for that one, don't you, Nat? And and what is that? The people who write the headlines don't write the stories. Oh, really? Well, yes. I have to I have Apparently. to I have to wonder uh, if maybe <laughs> the people who write the headlines are all of a way. <laughs> but. <laughs> You know, there's a lot of trends there, and I started to become more skeptical of things that I was consuming, whereas previously my worldview was such that, no, anyone that is given a lot of power in society probably earned that because they were good, and it turns out they weren't always good. And so I learned to kind of have an eye of scrutiny towards things when I consume them, and that's when I rewatched Ben-Hur, not out of any... um any desire to scrutinize it no just because i wanted to wa- i was in the mood to watch some film epics so i watched ben-hur i watched lawrence of arabia and as i'm watching ben-hur i'm like oh my god oh oh my god this before we get into the nuts and bolts of ben-hur did you watch a 1080 version of this yeah those uh, it was actually filmed on i was talking to uh Kaber earlier and he was saying that it was filmed on 70 millimeter stock they transfer beautifully to a to a blu-ray don't they Yes, this is this is a beautiful movie. It looks beautiful as well, doesn't it? it, it the, it's really nice and crisp, isn't it? And a, a nice seventy mil print. Because I don't know whether you know that, but uh, IMAX is filmed on seventy millimeter as well. That's why it pops. I am aware of that, and yeah. for some reason, uh, a lot of IMAX movies don't go all the way through on that format. I guess because it needs to be clipped or uh, or letterboxed or something like that on non IMAX screens. So mm. yeah, having. Um, it's it's a very wide format. I'm going to say it's maybe 21.9 or something of that nature. It's a very wide format. And that's what a lot of these epics have in common. I think it's fantastic. I think that uh, TV screens are eventually going to go more in that direction with wider formats. It won't happen soon, but I think we're going to... Uh, computer monitors have already gotten wider than 16.9. So I think that when the current crop of gimmicks start to lose their flair for people, maybe after we switch over to 8K, I think that aspect ratios are going to get wider as well, or just just kind of a little more vast in in some directions. (laughs) And uh, then you can experience Ben-Hur in all of its full screen glory. And and what is Ben-Hur? Ben-Hur is a plea to the American people to recognize and accept the state of Israel, which was established after World War II with the help of jolly old England. And this uh, was kind of a, a plea by Israelis, uh, Israel supporters in America to the greater American people to kind of ease any controversy around the implementation, the forced implementation of this state. We'll never really know what that controversy was, and I'll, I'll, I'll touch upon that in a bit, but we'll, uh, uh, clearly this film was addressing that. Now, the book, the book was written in the late 1800s, so clearly, clearly, it doesn't have the same message. Or does it? Or does it? You see, the effort to establish Israel wasn't just something that people came up with after World War II. It's like, oh, the Holocaust happened. The Jewish people need to be protected so that it never happens again. Never again, right? Hashtag never again. Well, that's not quite the story. What, what really happened is that uh, the state, the formation of a state of Israel had been advocated for by activists for about a century beforehand. And it it took about a century and also a a world war to finally have the Cassus Belli, if you will, to just run roughshod into the Middle East and establish the state of Israel on English-owned land in, in a state that was formerly called Palestine. Yes, it was called Palestine, my dudes. Anyone joining us from the Donald subreddit might say that Palestine was never a real nation, but I'll, I'll, I'll have you know uh, that you can look up on Wikipedia, Mandatory Palestine. That's the name, Mandatory Palestine. And, uh, and you'll see, oh yeah, huh, I guess it was some kind of municipality at one point. So the book kind of loads its context similarly, but not identically to the movie, because the book has a different objective. The book isn't trying to evoke certain images like the movie is. The book is is trying to say to you that, hey, Arabs have taken over this region of the world when it used to belong to the Jews. It, it, it stops just short of saying that Arabs invaded that part of the Middle East. It stops just short of using that kind of language. It's very, it's very tactful in its phrasing, but it does um, impress upon you that this was a, an Arab-dominated area. 
but of course also Roman occupied. Now, I'm not sure if Romans are portrayed the same way in the book as they are in the movie. I have not read the whole book. I've read some of the book. Speaking of the book, did you know it was blessed by Pope Leo VIII? The first novel ever to re- receive such praise. <sighs> Why'd you tell me that? <laughs> <laughs> There's some things I don't want to know. Um, Sorry, Dad. <laughs> you don't want to know how the sausage is made. When was this guy Pope? I mean, I don't know every Pope. I don't know every Pope. Do you happen? Did you happen to pick that uh, up? Because if it was I'll after... To, I'll have to find out. He was, he was the head of the Catholic Church from 20th of February 1878 to his death. So what? Oh, that's too bad. Because uh, I'm okay with saying, like, after Vatican II, like, the Pope's not legitimate. But if, if Popes, bef- you know, mm. before that time were making stupid mistakes like that, I'm, I'm, I'm really at a loss. Oh, 1903. Okay. Well, I guess, you know, uh, Popes are men, and they're led, down, uh, they're led down certain paths by certain people at certain times. But again, uh, this was Lou Wallace. He was a Zionist. He was not Jewish, but he was a Zionist. And he, I think he felt out of a racial animosity towards Arabs or, or perhaps Muslims in general. Uh, I mean, they're kind of the same thing in terms of demography. I think out of animosity for that people, he kind of planted himself as a stalwart Zionist. He wanted the formation of the state of Israel reserved for the Jewish people. And the Zionism movement, again, had been going on for a century before the actual establishment of, of Israel. I think today those people would be called something like, you know, Jewish nationalists or something. Because the, you know, similar people who advocate for similar things today are kind of marred with terms like that. So it's interesting that there there was such a movement. We don't really hear much about that movement. You kind of have to go out of your way to study Zionism in order to realize that this was the case, that this did exist. It, it existed for far longer than most people believe, uh, typically. Again, they, they kind of associate this with World War II. It's not really related to World War II. Zionism goes well beyond World War II. They're not really related. If anything, uh, World War II is, was just yet another bullet point in the kind of the, the PowerPoint presentation for Zionists. So in 1959, when Ben-Hur was released, speaking of World War II, it was still the center of the universe. And it kind of, uh, it kind of is st- today. Even though in 2020, only 2% of people who fought in World War II were estimated to be alive. So think about the opening of this movie in the context that the number of living was more like 92%. Okay, And, and so this is evoking images of, of World War II or ideas from World War II to people who lived through World War II and had been on the battlefield, although only 10% actually saw serious combat, they were there. They were participating in World War II. They were proud to have done so. In the 1950s weren't just a period of worldwide growth, prosperity, and lots of uh, fricking. It was also the zenith of the modern founding myths. So the oxymoron nation of immigrants was popularized during this time. I think that's uh, this came out a year after that phrase was being used a lot when it started to be used a lot. And that phrase may have been born in America, but it's been used all over the world, even in Italy. I've seen it been uh, been used in Italy when one of uh, the left-wing politicians over there said that Italy is a nation of immigrant workers, or I think he might have said migrant workers, whatever, it's Italian. Um, <laughs> kind of like trying to flip it around. It's like we can use a variation on this phrase to accomplish the exact same thing. But this was born in the 1950s, this idea. And it was also a time of racial segregation in America. And that was being leveraged politically at that time as well, and was basically equivalent to slavery in terms of of being a political token. So take all these things together. The film simultaneously evokes sympathy for Jews from World War II, uh, new, new thoughts on immigration and immigrants, and black slaves all in one tale, right? We mentioned that Ben-Hur becomes a slave, really no fault of his own, due to no fault of his own, freak accident that he actually uh, was only blamed for because of anti-Semitic animosity. However, there's another axis to this. There's another axis. It's, it, it, it evokes all of these ideas with an insidious and underhanded kind of framing device. And that device is Jesus Christ himself. So before World War II, America was close to 100% Christian. It's hard to believe now, but just in a couple of generations, we've gone from 100% to, you know, it's, it's deteriorated heavily. I would say the number of practicing Christians is probably 30%. I, I think more identify as such, but... 
I would have thought, yeah, practicing is going to be a lot lower, isn't it? I'd, I'd say you'd probably get to kind of like 50. People who describe themselves as, as Christian, yeah, probably 50 or 60%. Yeah. This was close to, uh, self-described Christians was close to 100% before World War II. Mm. So the idea behind Ben-Hur was to exploit this specifically by with it, creating a narrative that placed Jews as the good guys in Jesus's life and Rome as the bad guys. And the conclusion that gullible normies are supposed to derive from this is, well, if Jesus, then Israel. Judeo-Christian values. Is that what you're talking about now? Exactly. Exactly. And although I've never looked into it, I would wager that that phrase also came out of the 1950s. So it was this idyllic time of almost unlimited prosperity and growth. I'm, I'm not sure how it was in Europe, but at least in America, it was like that. I think that Europe uh, had a little harder of a time because they were rebuilding everything after knocking it all over. But I, I don't think it was uh, uh, very socially ill. And meanwhile, the United States was in a time of really, uh, compared to today, uh, kind of very good social purity, a time of, of Christian values, and however, also a time of, of kind of rebelling against that. But the rebellion was very, it was very weak. It was almost, it was almost wholesome. It was more so in terms of uh, just what clothing you wore. And even the clothing was kind of stylish. But the rebels of the time were people like, uh, it was like James Dean in Rebel Without a Cause and um, Marlon Brando in, is it the wild one, is it? What's the Mark Brando one where he's in a motorcycle gang? Yeah, I know what movie you're talking about. I, I don't yeah. know the title. But yeah, and those guys, I mean, really the only thing that distinguished them is that they didn't smile a lot and they wore leather jackets. It's almost quaint to think that this was degeneracy at the time. And <laughs> because it's so gradual, it was so easy. It was so easy to tell people that everything was okay and anyone uh, who expressed concern over this was just a square. They were just a grump. They were just uptight. You're just not hip, daddy-o. <laughs> exactly. You're just, you're just unsatisfied with yourself. You're, just you're projecting your own insecurities upon others. That was the beginning of all of it. It's just because you don't want me to be happy, dad. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Wow, I forget that people used to say that. <laughs> wow. I had actually forgotten that because we're so far away from that kind of subversion, right? That sort of innocent subversion. Yeah. We're now, I, I would say the same thing as like, uh, <laughs> you're, you're just subjected to, you know, centuries of oppression against gays or something of that nature, right? Or like <laughs> millennia of oppression against women. Like we have taken that narrative and exploded it to all of like human history. <laughs> like everything has been wrong before this particular decade, before current year. <laughs> just rip it all up and throw it away. It rip everything up and throw it away. But at, at this time in the 50s, it was such a it was such a tiny trickle of degeneracy that it was almost it was almost imperceptible. And the same thing happened here. To follow your logic, these were the first cracks in the dam, weren't they? With, with your trickle analogy, it's like the first cracks where we had the first little dribble come through. Yes, the post-war dribble. Let's call it that. <laughs> Sounds like a good thesis title, doesn't it? The post-war uh, dribble. <laughs> the post-war dribble of the 1950s, where <laughs> women started to become a little more immodest, rock and roll was becoming popular. Pointy bras. Pointy bras. <laughs> <laughs> That's motorcycle gangs nice incredible pointy bras from the 50s you know as proud as people were to be american they had also experienced an incredibly traumatic war with people who they're closely related and i think this gave way to atomization or it also made americans think what is the purpose of america it, it left a big void what is the purpose of america are we there to win wars and destroy evil well okay i think a lot of people actually that that was part of the founding myth of, of modern america is that america existed to to destroy evil through military force and that's something that was being installed through movies like ben hur through 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 media through through journalism that uh, we, we were having that software update installed into america to say like okay thanks england for helping win the war in europe so this is this is Zionist saying this to England. Thanks for for helping win the war in Europe. Thanks for uh, establishing a state for us in our ancient promised land. But now we see that <laughs> things are going a little south for you now. We see that your empire is kind of uh, cracking apart and drifting away, huh? Just a little bit. And 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 we see that America is actually where things are 
are good and dandy. And, and also a lot of Zionists have settled in America since the time of World War II. So it's time for us to get to work over in America. And we have to make America the new sponsor of Israel. Israel, proudly sponsored by the United States of America. Back just a little bit to the bit where you said about America fighting, you know, policing the world. It's like that. Is it, is it the Nietzsche quote, is it, about uh, fighting monsters? Lest you be, become a monster yourself. I think the hero complex of the United States is easily subverted. And that is the real problem. Now, I, I don't think that the people of the United States are monsters. Like I don't think that the Americans who fought in World War II are monsters just because they may have been directed in some way. But yes, the, the machine that is the military industrial complex is a monster. It's completely overgrown and it is being manipulated for maybe not entirely good causes or or even just causes in the, in the interest of the people that it's intended for. Ben-Hur was a I think a watershed moment for Hollywood. There's that phrase isn't there, you know, if if you if you're a hammer you see every, see everything as a nail to knock in, don't you? And that's the that's the military industrial complex's problem, isn't it? Right, right. If you have a hammer everything looks like a nail. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely right. If uh, if you have the largest military in the world by far, everything looks like the axis of evil. Mm. But Ben-Hur wasn't just a beloved film. It was a highly lauded film in terms of media attention. It was the second highest grossing, wasn't it, after Gone with the Wind? Oh, I see. I didn't know that. But yeah, it, it was nominated for 12 Oscars, and it won 11 of them. So it swept the Oscars. What about the massive budget, a whopping 15 million? <laughs> Yeah, right? <laughs> How much did it make? Are you looking at the numbers now? What did it take in at the box office? Box office, 146.9 million. Okay. Yeah, that was probably unheard of at the time. Yeah. You could say this was the avatar of its day. Well, it almost was the avatar of its day because uh, everything I've read about it says it's second It's second to Gone, Gone with the Wind. So Gone with the Wind was Avatar the... is second? or No, no. Ben-Hur is second to Gone with the Wind. Oh, okay. <laughs> you mean like adjusted for inflation or at the time of release? Uh, what is it? Yeah, see, you see, Gone with the Wind had a budget of 3.85 million and a box office of, I think that says, greater than uh, 390 million. Wow. That's crazy for back then. Yeah, yeah. Considering the price of a, of a movie ticket back then. Sure. Wow. That that might actually be the um, the highest grossing film ever adjusted for inflation. Yeah. Be interested to look into that sometime. But in the 2010s, we're used to award ceremonies being these agenda-charged affairs. They are charades. They are charades for the most disgusting people in the world to give themselves a globally publicized pat on the back, right? You have tens of millions of people watching the Oscars live all over the world. It's considered a very interesting event, no matter where you're from. It's not just for Americans. It's not even just for Westerners, people in Asia and whatnot. Also, uh, like Japan, they watch the Oscars. Uh, but that is what was happening in the 1950s, generations prior. That same kind of, this is an agenda. Giving these awards isn't just about the quality of the film. We're voting for this film because of its message. Kind of like Black Panther. I can't remember if that won any Oscars. I think it did, but it doesn't matter because it was highly lauded by the media as one of the best movies of all time. Even though it's it's horrible, like it's not a good movie, but we know why it was lauded. So think back to that moment. Try and place yourself in that moment, okay? In the 1950s, and anyone you know that's today in their 80s or 90s were in the prime of their life at that time. And what's really crazy is that we'll never know who among them was woke. A lot of them have passed away, but I think that before, during, and after World War II, there might have been millions of people who understood what was going on with things like Ben Hur, but felt like they were alone or existed in isolated groups that couldn't caucus or simply weren't given a platform for their ideas because they didn't have the internet. They didn't have the internet where someone could crawl into one of the uh, the cracks between the, the firewalls of censorship and start to say things like, hey, um, maybe maybe Ben-Hur is getting so much attention from these 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 rich people in Hollywood, not just because it's a good movie, but because they want us to like Israel. And I, I, don't, I don't think that this was something that it was just unspoken. I don't think that this is like, oh, yeah, everyone went in the theater. Yeah, of course, they know this about Israel. It just like it makes a great case for the state of Israel. No, I, I think that this is more of a subconscious thing. It was things like Ben-Hur that helped 
to distort the world into two realities, the publicized world and the unpublicized world. And it, it, the message of Ben-Hur was pushed into the public and any kind of dissent, which must have existed at the time, was suppressed or not even suppressed. I don't think people were put into jail over talking poorly about Ben-Hur, maybe some of the things that it might have been advocating for. Do you think that if there was Twitter back then that any dissenters would have been chased off of Twitter? Do you think that? Is that what you're saying? Well, to answer that, all you need to do is look at any media attention around criticism of Black Panther. Or or uh, uh, Ghostbusters was the same, wasn't it? The female Ghostbusters. Perhaps. Yeah, Ghostbusters is a, is a good one, too. Well, that, that was why, that was why My Milo went from Twitter, wasn't it? Wait, really? Milo... Yiannopoulos was uh, banned from Twitter over Ghostbusters? It was a comment about the black lady from Ghostbusters. Really? <laughs> yeah, huh. I'm pretty sure that's why he went from Twitter. Yeah, well, the political climate, obviously, in the 1950s was insanely different from what we have now, because mm. the people in America are insanely different from the ones who live in America now. So the political climate was different. Uh, it, it probably would have been very difficult to explain to people that something is good or bad when they ask you, so what's bad? Like, right now, what's affecting your life? Like, what are you going to do? You're going to say, well, maybe in like 200 years, things will be bad. I mean, they're just going to laugh at you. Right? They, how is anyone supposed to take you seriously when you're trying to explain a problem like that? Like, oh, maybe in, maybe in 100 years, things are going to be really, really crappy if we if we keep going down this route. It's like, you're, you're insane. You're completely insane. How could you possibly how could you possibly know that? But there must have been people. There must have been people who knew who could have predicted everything that we're experiencing today, like play by play. There must have been a few people or uh, and, and then there must have been a larger pool of people who were capable of predicting some things. Right. But the point is that the people in power, the people with money, the people with influence, the people, the tastemakers, if you will, they all felt one way and they weren't going to lend a platform to people who disagree with them. That's crazy. So it's not even like Twitter. So Twitter is like trying to hold you back, right? And drag you into prison, right? They're banning you. They're uh, they're suppressing your tweets from showing up. They're things like shadow bans and, and uh, bubbling. Uh, this is a little bit different. It's just like, nope, you're just not going to have a voice. We're just going to ignore you. We're just not going to give you a platform. And that's sort of a weird kind of passive censorship that's almost... It, it doesn't seem as malicious as it really is because kind of one of the, you, you can make the argument that one of the best ways for culture to develop is for people to just ignore what they don't like, but not suppress what they don't like. But this is a little bit insidious because it allows for bad trends to emerge and for bad things to take over just because the people who have the, uh, they, they hold the keys to the ignore train. This is a terrible analogy, Jesus. But <laughs> they, they actually make ignoring ideas possible you know there's a there's kind of a bottleneck for ideas to get through and they get to choose which get through and which don't like it's a small pool of people who get to make that decision about what to ignore and what to promote now if you want to know who those people are you really don't need to look much further than wikipedia at least for now i'm sure that a lot of this information is going to be scrubbed over time but in a very gradual way but today, at least, we can find out that the people who made Ben-Hur are, as you can probably predict, mostly Jewish. The director and producer are. Uh, the screenplay writer is ambiguous. If you look at his name, you kind of feel like he should be, but there is no direct confirmation. There was more than one person that had a hand in the script. Hold on one second. It's, um... Oh, yeah? I only saw one guy in the credits for that. Yeah, it's it's credited to Carl Thunberg, but includes contributions from Maxwell Anderson, S.N. Berman, uh, Gore Vidal, and Christopher Froy. Gore Vidal? That sounds familiar. Yeah, he didn't, didn't he do a lot of westerns. He also wrote the screenplay for... He had a hand in it. I think they obviously had a bit of a scriptwriter's move. Uh, Gore Vidal. The Wikipedia opening for this is very funny. Uh, Gore Vidal was an American writer and public intellectual, known for his patrician manner, epigrammatic wit, and polished style of writing. What kind of an opening? What kind of a, an encyclopedia article is this? <laughs> Using words like this is patrician manner. Wow. To be called a patrician by Wikipedia itself. Huh. Oh, okay. Now I know why I know him. He was a politician. He was a, he was a, a Democrat politician. Uh, I always thought he was a film director. I don't know why I thought that. I don't know if he was actually voted in office. It just says here that he was... Uh, he twice sought elected office. So I, ironically enough, he had a hand in writing Caligula. I'm just having a look. Ah, interesting. And he did a Billy the Kid film in 1989. Oh, and look at this. Vidal thought all men and women are bisexual. 
<laughs> How patrician. Let's take a look at early life here. See, I don't I don't think he's uh, among them because he comes from a political family. And you can usually tell based on like the t- the era and like the person's like uh, family background in terms of their their trade. You can usually tell, and and if it's not explicitly mentioned. But yeah, he's um he's just a weirdo. <laughs> he also wrote a novel about called Link. Uh, yeah, did a novel about Lincoln. I don't know whether um I don't know whether the film Lincoln was based on any of that at all. Tyrant Abraham Lincoln. Uh, one thing I want to point out is also the the actress who plays the love interest is straight up Israeli. If we're talking about actors, have you know, have you seen the name name of the guy that plays the sheik? <laughs> Hugh Griffith played the sheik. You know the uh, the Arab guy that that. Um, oh wait, Hugh that, Griffith. Yeah, <laughs> it was a, it was a dude playing blackface. No sneaky Welsh. <laughs> That's pretty common in this movie. I mean, like Charlton Heston to play a you know Middle Eastern Jew, they basically just make him get a tan and yeah. maybe put some makeup on him, and that's it. Like very few people in this movie are in fact Jewish or Middle Eastern. Uh, like I said, the actress who played the love interest was Israeli. Her parents came from uh, Poland to Israel, so that's how she was born there. There's a lot of British talent in this as well, like Jack Hawkins. He's he's no, he's known for stuff like Zoo. He was in Zulu, Bridge Over the River, River Kwai, and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. And I I just think it's funny that you know, and this is a really common thing throughout a lot of uh, a lot of Hollywood's history is that when they want to have a flattering character to play someone who is Jewish, they will often just get you know like a british guy <laughs> and a, a handsome british guy you know someone that the audience will relate to so they don't actually get someone who is jewish and no one complains about it no one complains that they're they're whitewashing jewish roles isn't that interesting mm, strange that mm-hmm. but clearly in this film you know the the romans are supposed to be nazis and the the the, the jewish people are oppressed by them so they just need their own land so that i don't know christ was cool with it i guess so if you want to be christ-like you ought to be cool with israel and that is ultimately the takeaway however that's not the only way you can tell this story as we will see with our next movie ben hur the current year version the current year version, yeah. So, the, yeah, this is a kind of a, a reimagining of the original novel, as it was, as the the makers of this put it. Well, I had, I had quite a good summing up for the in- intro to this, didn't I? It was like because because it opens up in the middle of the chariot race, which is like the kind of penultimate scene of the original film, and it's kind of it shows a bit of that, and then it's like, oh, you can imagine the record scratch. You're probably wondering how, wondering how I ended up in this chariot race. Yeah, yeah. This this movie treats Ben Hur. Like it's the chariot race. Like it that that's the movie. It treats Ben Hur like the entire story is the chariot race. Like we didn't really talk about this while talking about the movie because it's kind of like incidental to the the messages of the film. Uh, although you could say like, look, this uh, we're all equal because Ben Hur can play sports well. <laughs> so this is kind of a theme that has carried on throughout history, has it not? Right? We're all equal. Look, Ben Hur, he's a really good chariot racer. So because he plays sports well, we're all everyone's equal and you should you should care about Israel. Um, <laughs> I only watched literally about 10 minutes and I thought this is garbage. So I'd, you watched all of it, didn't you? Know? Yeah. And aside from starting the movie with the chariot race and then doing the record scratch moment and then also doing a 10 minute long chariot race that is itself almost a scene for scene remake of the original one from the 1959 film. They also have an end credit sequence that has the credits themselves in a chariot race. (laughs) So I'm guessing, I'm guessing whoever, whoever made, made that kind of watched the original film and kind of missed the point of it. Uh, So, okay. So overt Zionism isn't really cool anymore, right? So what is this movie about? Is it simply yet another reboot to cash in on a famous name? Right, we've seen dozens. Well, of did those, they did many... they just turn it into kind of a revenge flick? Did they? Is that what they did? Well, uh, I don't actually think it eschews all the propaganda of the source material. So, can you guess what this movie is propagandizing? You didn't watch all of it. Maybe the listener can um, guess too. We're all the same under the skin because he's an adopt adopted brother in this one, isn't he? Masala. Ah, uh, yeah. the The Jewish family adopted a Roman. That's right, a man of Roman ethnicity. Uh, no, actually. It is freedom for Palestine. That 
that is the political message of this rendition of Ben-Hur. Uh, Jesus has way less to do with stuff, as you might expect. Instead, a Nubian played by Morgan Freeman is helping free Jewish slaves. Like, Jesus is still in it, but... It, I mean, it's a, it's a world of difference. There's some very, very short scenes where Jesus recites some of like the most pop culture, like Jesus quotes ever, like stuff you've heard probably a million times in pop culture. He just sort of blatantly says it. It's very ham fisted. <laughs> Following what you say, if you read the Wikipedia, it says, and I quote, Unlike the original film, Christ has a prominent role in this version. Paramount Pictures Vice Chairman Rob Moore stated that Christ in this version is going to be consistent with people's expectations and that the expectations of the faithful will be honoured by this one. This was because Paramount wants to avoid the sort of backlash received by Darren Aronofsky's Noah because some Christians were dismayed by the film's inventive interpretation of the Bible. Santoro said it was the most challenging role he's ever taken on. This is Rodrigo Santoro played Jesus. He received personal blessings from Pope Francis for his role as Christ. Yeah, that's some like PR bullcrap because <laughs> I mean, yeah, compared to Noah, <laughs> with, I mean, for those who haven't seen that movie, it almost treats uh, the Bible like Lord of the Rings. And also, uh, I mean, it is Old Testament stuff, so it almost is Lord of the Rings. <laughs> but um, you know, it's uh, I I don't know. I, I I honestly had no idea there was a lot of backlash. It wasn't. It was kind of a grittier take on the Bible. It did. It seemed to kind of include stuff that wasn't in the Bible. I mean, it's the Old Testament, so it's. I mean, if you want to do a modern film about that and make it like have a lot of impact, like it's it's easy to do that with Jesus. He was a man. People relate to like a person. In any case, the, uh, this new rendition of Ben Hur, I felt was actually less Christian. And uh, perhaps maybe minute for minute, there's more Jesus. I don't know. But it had really nothing to do with the Christian message. I mean, of course, this movie was a lot shorter. It was almost half the length of uh, the original Ben Hur. But they went to great lengths beyond simply Ben Hur's rise to fame as a chariot racer and, and talked a lot about his family and how they actually received salvation for Christ from Christ when Christ was alive and how their stories sort of intertwine and 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 their stories don't intertwine very tightly it's not like oh ben hur was the guy behind the guy you know <laughs> no that's not how it's presented in the in in the original ben hur and certainly not in the new one it was more just like ben hur was a guy who has an interesting story a fictional guy uh, and he also happened to encounter Christ when Christ was alive, and he was struck by you know, he accepted Christ as his savior. Basically, I, I, I found I found Ben Hur's lack of faith quite disturbing, to coin a phrase, um, because I, he kind of threw a tantrum, didn't he? Until until his until his um, sister and mother got cured, and then he was like all in, and he was like a normal person again. Do you know what I mean? It's I mean I mean he didn't he didn't have half the grief that uh, that Job had, did he? Well, also keep in mind that the message of the movie is that, see, some Jews accepted Christ's word, and you wouldn't have Christianity, <laughs> Westerners, if Jews hadn't, if some Jews hadn't followed Christ to begin with. So therefore, help the Jews who never accepted Christ. <laughs> I, I, I suppose it is absolutely stereotypical of a Jew, though, they're like, you do this for me and I'll believe in you. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, maybe. I don't know how much this follows the uh, the original book. Talking about the sixty nine one in that one because it's like yeah, yeah, the fifty nine. Yeah, yeah. He's like really pouty and kind of given up on life, hasn't he? And then his mum and mum and sister, mum and sister get cured, and then he's okay. Then, isn't he? He starts getting back into life again. Right, absolutely. And it is very Hollywood, and it is very uh, kind of misunderstanding what it means to be Christian mm. and to to accept Christ as your savior. That has nothing to do with a transaction <laughs> right <laughs> so uh i want to talk about the cast of this new film a little bit I, I think it's interesting that almost no one in the acting cast is jewish like almost zero percent of the acting cast is jewish <laughs> so just like charlton heston in the old movie the two main guys are uh both the uk mix um by the way, I was wondering, is there a slang term a la a Merrimut for a UK mix in the UK? Like if I'm if, if I'm a if I'm a dude in the UK, I'm I'm like English, Irish, and Scottish. 
Is there is there such a term um, for me? Not really. <laughs> just a Brit. I think it's, I think I think English English is quite exclusive. So I think that's probably how we differentiate. I see. Yeah. Or, or probably I, I think probably the closest you'd, you'd get is like a Heinz fifty seven, which is kind of a slang for a mongrel. If someone's a bit of a mix, Heinz fifty seven. Yeah, like the ketchup. Yeah, I think you know. I don't even know, but on the Heinz cans, they used to have fifty seven, which was fifty seven varieties. <laughs> so that's kind of. <laughs> That's that's the slang for like a mongrel. It's like a, he- a Heinz fifty-seven. I'm gonna remember that one. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. It's like it's like no. Is it like a hundred odd lines they do now? But the original the original was like fifty-seven, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah. Um. So the producers are Jewish, but uh, I think they're just like the studio guys. They're just like the guys from the studio managing the film. So the screenwriters aren't really. So uh, the director is like this is out of left field. The director is Kazakh. So for those unfamiliar, uh, Kazakhstan is a country where the people are an eclectic combination of Turks and Mongols with a Slavic minority. So, uh, yeah, he just looks sort of like a like that (laughs) Um, more on the Turkish Mongolian side. Uh, So that's kind of weird. Um, Morgan Freeman. I mentioned him before. He kind of takes on the role as the deuteragonist. They just, they just, they just can't put an Arab in the role of she, of the sheikh in this film, can they? They just can't do no, it. No. Well, well, well. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. He's explicitly not Arab, so they're not. Oh, doing... is he what in the book? In the in the source material? Uh, good question. I'm not sure about that one, but he's an he's explicitly a Nubian sheikh, Morgan Freeman. Now, uh, I, I feel the need to mention. Like, as I was watching this, I feel the need to mention that Egypt was never ruled by a sub-Saharan African person such as Morgan Freeman. (laughs) And even the Nubians, although they were black, they were Northeast African, which is very geographically close to Egypt itself. Well, from from the pictures of um, who was the queen that there were pictures of recently? No, is it Nefertiti? Was it? She was. She looked very Mediterranean, didn't she? Was she Nubian? Because the Nubians were black in terms of complexion. Like, if you look at like look up Nubians on Google Image Search, they're black. They're really, really black. Mm. But for someone like who's Sub-Saharan African to say that like they were. Nubian. That would be like me. Like I'm a Jewish Iranian who moved from LA to Liverpool when I was 19. That would be like me saying my ancestors were samurai because a hundred thousand years before the samurai existed, my ancestors were distantly related to people who would become Japanese one day. Oh, speaking of the cast, <laughs> here's a quote for you. This is from uh, Nazanin Bar. Boniardi, who played Esther. Boniardi was very pleased with the fact that women's roles in this film were expanded, unlike previous versions. She described her character as very strong-willed and independent. <laughs> were, the okay, people, were all the people having interviews for this film talking in cliches, were they? Yeah, right? It's like they didn't even watch the movie they were in, because that's really <laughs> not the case. Like, It's not really told that way. She was a slave who was freed by Ben-Hur because Ben-Hur fell in love with her. And at first he's like, well, she's a slave. I shouldn't. I'm a prince. I'm a prince. I'm an honest-to-God prince. <laughs> but then he, he's like, no, wait, I love her. So he decides not to sell her. Um, <laughs> he decides to marry her instead. I love you so much, I'm not going to sell you. Yeah, <laughs> That's how much I love you. They just kind of stayed with the house, didn't they? <laughs> In the original. Yeah, yeah. But I was going to say that the actress is not Israeli or anything like that. As far as I know, she's like Mediterranean. She's like Italian or something. Some of that nature. Oh, I don't know. Her name was Hoya Hararit. The one who played... Is it Esther we're talking about? That's right. That, that was the uh, Polish-Jewish-Israeli that uh, was in the original movie. Um, the new one... Oh, she's Jewish. The new Esther is like... Ital- yeah, yeah, yeah. The new Esther is Italian. Yeah, sorry, the old Jewish... The, the old Esther was Jewish. She was born in Haifa, in, which was then mandatory Palestine. <laughs> right. And, and she's one of the few people on the old cast who was, in fact, Jewish. Yeah. Uh, the most I could find in the new cast, like, I found one half-Jewish person. So that's uh, interesting. Yeah, this is very much a non-Jewish take on a story that was specifically written as advocacy for Jewish people. So I think that's really interesting, even though the movie itself is bad, again, because it seems to think the chariot race was the whole movie. I, I, I think now just the that which was built up over generations has now grown a mind of its own. The people who created this monster don't know what to do with it. They are almost at their wits end. And now the same people that they have been building up are going around uh, making propaganda that is just as subtle against them, right? 
So basically, the masters, there's there's sort of a slave revolt here, <laughs> but it's not really kind of what we would prefer. It was, uh, it, it's sort of like the Frankenstein that they made is now rebelling against its creator. I kind of want to talk a little bit about some of the general public takes on the original Ben-Hur and the new one. So when I originally thought, hey, is this movie like propaganda? I did some Googling and what I found was actually found a, a paper written by a professor at the University of Tel Aviv. Let's see if I can pull it up here. It's called The Double Conversion of Ben-Hur, A Case of Manipulative Translation. And I'll just read the uh, opening um, paragraph, kind of the uh, before the foreword, the thesis statement of this paper. It's written by Nitsa Ben-Ari of Tel Aviv University. Of course, university is spelled wrong. Who the heck published this thing? <laughs> um, but we know that Nitsa Ben-Ari is, is real, apparently. There is a picture of her at the top of this paper. Very, very weird. But uh, ever since the 18th century revival of Hebrew literature, translation has been considered an efficient tool for ideological manipulation. Christianity has been a traditional candidate for such manipulation. Fear and hatred of the younger religion may have accounted for this subversive treatment of Christian elements in Hebrew texts. Strategies varied depending on period and norm, mostly involving omission of undesirable material, but often converting the text into a more acceptable ideological type. Ben-Hur, subtitle A Tale of the Christ, written in 1880 by Lew Wallace, is one of the novels most translated and most tampered with, and due to its predominantly Christian character, it can serve as an illuminating case study, both for the subversion of Christian elements and for the more, quote, creative conversion into the few against many, or Jewish bravura against the Roman Empire model. It's amazing what people say when they feel like they're in their safe space, right? I feel like I'm reading something from the Daily Stormer when I read this paper. <laughs> unbelievable. Unbelievable. I'm going to click a few links here and just read off some other things people have said. I think we've hammered the point home. We talked a little bit about the, the public reality versus the unpublicized reality. <laughs> did, you, did you know the original Ben-Hur was banned in China under the range of Mao Zedong for containing propaganda of superstitious beliefs, namely Christianity? Okay. See, that's that's the that's the insidious part here is that we're experiencing this kind of subversion wrapped up inside of 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 Christianity. It's wrapped up in a in a delicious phyllo dough of Christianity. I also found out that there's a Heim Wiseman Institute for the Study of Zionism and Israel in Tel Aviv. I mean, that's that's just interesting. You know, they have a whole institute for the study of their ethnic nation and 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 the promotion and establishment of that nation. I it's just a uh, you know, it kind of it kind of speaks volumes that there's a double standard around this. Uh one thing uh the Times of Israel said about the 2016 Ben-Hur, uh headline is uh, 2016 Ben-Hur may be about a Jew, but there's not much Jewish about it. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh sub uh subheading um, new version of 1880 novel is a mix of faith-based schmaltz and action razzle-dazzle. Is that 2016, that one, what, that last one? Yeah, that's 2016. So that sort of co uh, corroborates what I was saying, that there isn't really much... Substance. Not, not, nah, I don't want to say so. There isn't much of the original propaganda being represented here. These are uh, mostly non-Jewish people uh, kind of creating anti-Jewish propaganda, for what it's worth. <laughs> um, but, but actually, the Arab media disagrees. Uh, in the Arab media, uh, in El Bohwab News, uh, they were warning that the remake of the movie Ben-Hur, so the 2016 Ben-Hur, is Jewish Zionist propaganda. <laughs> I think they misinterpreted the film. I think they need to work on their film analysis skills. <laughs> they need to get woke. I mean, yes, it has sort of the same trappings as the original story, but the message is obviously different. Jews are being enslaved by Romans, and it sort of kind of frames Romans as modern Israelis. And it's sort of like saying, hey, Jews, you were oppressed by Romans, so why are you oppressing Palestinians? It's sort of this, uh, you know, low agency take. Um, the new Ben-Hur, how Christian is it? Oh, yeah. The old Ben-Hur, how Christian is it? <laughs> Speaking of Jewish representation, in every incarnation of this story, Ben-Hur is a Judean prince. I don't think that was actually a thing. 
Someone please tell me if there were Jewish princes during this point of the Roman occupation. That's a good point. I didn't even stop to think. I know that the character is fictional, but I didn't even stop to think about how, uh, you know, historically accurate this story might be. Probably not very. You have Jewish American princesses, so surely you have Jewish princes, don't you? (laughs) (laughs) Just our luck. A Jewish princess. Sorry for the Spaceballs references in this episode. I actually did just rewatch that movie. Yeah, they're they're sort of analyzing this from how were how was Christianity portrayed? Like was it portrayed fairly? Uh there is sort of a subplot in the new Ben-Hur where like this these this group of Jews called zealots are kind of like a violent hashtag resistance against the Romans <laughs> and I guess they're supposed to be followers of Jesus Christ. I don't know if there's any biblical backing to this. I really doubt it. Um, but it's uh, kind of, as the article here says, it's kind of misguided and counter to Jesus' Jesus's message of loving your enemies. So that's kind of, I don't know, that's kind of weird. Um, next one. Okay. Uh, Vice said, Ben-Hur couldn't have been worse. <laughs> the new version of Charlton Heston's epic barely qualifies as a remake. In fact, it barely qualifies as a film. Ooh. Let's see what the last paragraph has to stay here. Um Let's see. I, I think they're just complaining it's a bad movie. Yes, it is a bad movie. It's like poor craftsmanship. The cinematography is bad. The plot pacing is bad. The acting is not great. It, eh. um, it, it's just a bad film overall. Um, the woman who played, uh, I, I'm reading a paper here. Uh, what is it called? Uh, Israeli cinema, East slash West and the politics of representation. Um, so do, 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 do. it's talking about various Zionist films. And um, Haya Haruditi, or whatever, uh, the woman who plays the love interest in the original Ben-Hur film in the 50s, mm. um, she uh, became like a really big Zionist activist. Even though she was born in Israel and Israel was like established in her lifetime, uh, Israel proper, I guess you'd say, um, she was a big, big Zionist activist. So she was in tons of tons of movies that were like, it, like Ben-Hur, were Zionist uh, propaganda. I mean, in the literal sense. <laughs> Not in the tinfoil sense, right? That's the point <laughs> we're trying to get across here. Yeah, she did quite a few Italian films, apparently. So here's a site. American trial attorneys in defense of Israel. A Los Angeles legislator courageously stands in solidarity with Israel, channeling his aggressive zealous of advocacy on behalf of Israel. Yeah, this is a funny site here. This is attorneysdefendingisrael.blogspot.com. And in this article, um, let's see. Oh, okay. So he's complaining that <laughs> that the LA Times called uh, Judah Ben-Hur, Charlton Heston's character, a Palestinian nobleman. So uh, he's arguing there was no place such as Palestine in the time of Jesus, since the Romans didn't rename Judea to Palestine until 100 years after the death of Jesus. Yeah, I've heard that argument before. So that's interesting. Uh, perhaps, uh, I don't know much about the ethnic lines of Jews and Palestinians, but it, it perhaps <laughs> stands... Uh, stands to reason that Ben Hur was a was you know of that of the Palestinians ethnic line all along. Mm. Okay, I'm tired of reading articles, so I just <laughs> wanted to, uh, I just wanted to get mostly that uh, that Tel Aviv University paper out there again. That's called the Double Conversion of Ben Hur: A Case of Manipulative Translation. And while I have not read the entire paper, uh, I have read kind of excerpts like that, and they're all pretty much in the same vein. So if you want to read it and you want to say, hey, actually, this paper is about something totally different and you're just digging up canards, feel free to do so. You probably know how to find Hemingford or I. <laughs> well, Hemingford, it's been a blast. Thank you, as always, for, for joining me on this uh, magical journey through history. And remember, Nat, always look on the bright side of life. Wow. Wow. Wise words. <laughs> Wise words. I think if there's anything positive to take away from the study of Ben-Hur and movies like it, what you could say is that persistence is rewarded. And you can think about our people. When they are allowed to flourish, they always do. I think our job here and now is not to be those who flourish, but to be those who fight for the opportunity and grant that to generations to follow. Join us next week, where we'll share more memories of things that never happened. Until then, listeners, stay dope. People running by me on the street.